Well, I was not invited to the big bash in Britain yesterday, the royal wedding at Windsor Castle. I imagine you weren't invited either. But Harry and Meghan were easily married without us. Not only was I not invited, I personally don't know anyone who was. I don't know anyone who knows anyone who was. It was a pretty exclusive list. But I am mildly interested in who attended. Uh, the Cloonies were there, George and Amal. The Beckhams, David and Victoria, were there. Oprah was there. The groom, Harry, Prince Harry, wore his blues and royal frock coat uniform, magnificent. The bride wore a beautiful gown by Givenchy. For weeks, people were wondering who would make her gown and what it looked like. It looked like a white wedding dress to me, but it was indeed beautiful. And the ceremony, when, when you consider the pomp and the pageantry of it all, when you reflect upon the etiquette and the protocol, this was truly an iconic event, an amazing spectacle. And beyond question, it was truly stunning. I saw a little bit on YouTube. And what's more, they had the attention and notice of the world. Weddings are wonderful things that draw our attention, times of great celebration. But there is coming a wedding that will most certainly exceed this one, and I plan to be there for that one. By God's grace, I'm on the list. And so are you if you put your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not that you're just going to attend the wedding. You're the bride. If you've trusted Christ, you're the bride of Christ. If you've turned from all other loves and vowed yourself only to Christ and to Christ alone, he has dressed you in his beautiful gown of righteousness and salvation. Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians, by the way. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. Just like we are to give ourselves up for our bride, he gave himself up for his bride so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word so that he might present his bride, the church, before himself, a glorious spectacle without stain or blemish or any fault. For there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will have the notice of the world and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. And every believer will be there dressed in stunning fashion. Imagine the color of that event. Imagine the electricity that will be felt unsurpassed in splendor and glory as time is consummated in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And since that iconic day is coming and we are looking forward to it, how then should we live as the bride of Christ? Paul answers, you should live like Christ. So in Ephesians, that's what he's doing. He's telling us of who we are in Christ and how we ought to live like Christ. He talks about relationships. 
In chapter 4, it's the relationship that we have in the church, believer with believer. We're members one of another, and we need to get along. In chapter 5, he talks about the relationship between husband and wife. In chapter 6, you can turn there to Ephesians 6, he talks about the relationship between parent and child. And now, in verse 5 of Ephesians 6, he talks about, get this, wait for it, slaves and masters. Look at Ephesians 6 and verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. When Paul wrote this, the ancient Roman world seemed to be permeated in every part with slavery. William Barclay tells us that there were something like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, 60 million. That is, somewhere between 20 to 35% of the population. In some cities, there were more slaves than free people. W.L. Westerman, who wrote the book The Slave System of the Ancient Roman and Greek Empires, said the institution of slavery was so completely accepted as a fact, so part of their normal fabric of their economic life, so that no one could correctly speak of a slave problem. <laughs> they didn't even understand that there was an issue because it was so universally embraced, accepted, and interwoven in all that they did. People became slaves by being inherited. That is, if your family had slaves, you could pass them down to your posterity. They could be purchased like property, used to settle a debt as payment of a bad debt. POWs were slaves. Quite commonly, the Roman Empire was expanding, and as they would conquer territories, they would take their people away from their homeland and reinstate them somewhere in the Roman Empire so they were disoriented and make them slaves. There were domestic servants, people who did manual labor. But we have to understand this about the Roman Empire, and this is where it differs much from what we know about slavery in our own American history and it is this, many of the slaves uh, were given opportunities to better themselves. They were doctors, teachers. They were civil servants with great authority. The mayor of the town might actually be someone who was indentured as a slave. Many of them given opportunities for education 
and they could better themselves and even free themselves as the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Corinthians. So it's a grave mistake for us to suppose that every slave in the Roman Empire was customarily and habitually treated in a barbaric fashion. That was not the case. And what is also shocking is that when Paul addresses this issue, he doesn't call for it to be condemned. He doesn't call for it to be immediately abolished. He doesn't call for slaves to rise up in rebellion against their masters. That's almost the elephant in the room, what the Bible says says and doesn't say about slavery. And we'll look at that in a moment. But what does Paul do with this institution so universally accepted and so part of the fabric of normal society? Well, Paul, his primary concern is not about their outward condition. It's about their inward attitude. That's what's so shocking. It's not that he wants them to stay in a bad condition. He's simply saying there's something that even trumps that, and it is the attitude that you hold in the midst of adverse situations. If you want to be changed, he said in chapter 4, do so by the renewing of your mind. An attitude change is what Paul is after. Now, we don't have slaves and masters today like they did in that day. So when we run into a biblical situation where there isn't a one-on-one -on -one counterpart with our own life experience, we move it up a little bit looking for a principle or principles that transcend time and culture. And that's why I think it's very appropriate for us to look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, in the context of workers and bosses, labor and management. It's not exactly like the Roman Empire, to be sure, but there are some clear parallels. And what Paul wants to do is to focus us not on the outward condition, but our inward attitudes. So first of all, let's talk to labor. That's what Paul does when he says, Verse 5, he addresses slaves. Obey your earthly masters. The word obey, combination of two Greek words, it means to hear under. We've seen it before. It means someone is speaking authoritatively to you, and you are under that authority, and so to obey is to respond in proper fashion. What Paul wants to highlight is that believers should behave differently than other people. That's a reoccurring theme. Whatever the situation is, believers are different and should act differently. Our hearts are different and our lives should be as well. So to slaves, he said, you should be marked by the appropriate submission that your circumstances call for. Now, I think it's rather interesting. A couple important facts. Paul writes this from a prison. <laughs> He's something of a slave he is doing what he doesn't want to do, someone's will imposed upon him as he writes this letter. And secondly, Paul assumes that both slaves and masters will be sitting in the same assembly together, that they are accepted 
in the Christian community, and that is radical. He addresses them both with this same letter to be read to the assembled church. So how do you do this? How do you obey this directive? Well, then Paul gives us some guidelines. Number one, he says, do it with respect and fear. Attitudes. The word respect in the NIV comes from the Greek word phobos, where we get phobia. And we usually translate it fear. But on the spectrum of fear, you've got terror on the one hand and respect on the other and all kinds of fear in between. And sometimes the word fear simply means giving proper respect. And so it's a good translation here. But the second word translated fear comes from the Greek word traumos, where we get the English word trauma or tremor. In fact, what Paul is saying is obey your masters with fear and trembling. Have you ever heard that before? In fact, Paul wrote those very words in Philippians chapter 2 in the same prison to another church that were to serve Christ with fear and trembling. And now he says the same thing to the servants with respect and trembling. What does that refer to? It lies in the thought of offending the one who has authority over us. In the humble attitude and fear of I may not please the one who is directing me. Paul adds to this, you need to do this with sincerity of heart. This is verse 5 as well. Singleness of heart is the idea. A single focus. You're not double-minded. Your one intent is to follow your master's wishes. And then thirdly, and here is the kicker, the most important thing of all, you obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. In other words, Christ becomes the major focus. Did you notice that Christ is in all four of these verses addressed to slaves? Verse 5, just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, like slaves of Christ. Verse 7, serving the Lord, not men. Verse 8, know that the Lord will reward. This is a very Christocentric portion of Scripture, as is most of the Scripture, but now it's in your face. This is what I'm talking about. You need to serve not an earthly master, but a heavenly one. You are short-sighted if you serve man but not Christ. Behind the human employer, you must see your heavenly divine Lord. We sang a moment ago, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That's what Paul is saying. If you're a believer, behave differently. You are dead and crucified with Christ. Oh, you live? Well, it's not you. It's Christ living in you. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you ought to live by faith, focused on the Son of God. Faith in Christ, the one who loved you so much, he gave himself up for you, which connects us to Ephesians 5. That's what a loving husband does for his bride. Our human context should never overshadow our heavenly relationship. You and I too often forget that we're not serving earthly bosses. 
we're serving a heavenly Lord. And thus, problems abound. My first job, one of my first jobs, was to work for General Motors Truck and Coach. It was before my first year in college, I got a job on the assembly line, building trucks. I was putting back glass into small and medium-sized cabs, and it was my first introduction to people who want a paycheck but don't want to work for it. That's not true of everyone. There were some really hard workers on the line, but then there were others. And they would just do a little bit, not a whole lot of work. But when the boss was around, they would work. By the way, this is exactly what it says here in verse 6. We are to obey our bosses, not to win their favor when their eye is on us. Don't work just while they're watching. Did you know that some employees only work when the boss is evaluating their performance? Well, I was shocked. Now, in Plant 2 in Pontiac, Michigan, my dad, who was a white-collar worker in GM, had his own office in the same plant, would come out and see me on the line. He's dressed in his white shirt and tie and suit, and when he would come, the line would start working. And then they found out he was my dad, and they thought I was a spy. (laughs) I tried to work one time through my break and almost got killed because I was behind and trying to learn the job and not supposed to do that. Then they found out I was studying to be a preacher and life really got bad. But I was introduced to people who wanted a paycheck without working for it. Certainly a believer wouldn't do that, would they? But my circumstances are so bad. Paul says, your heart attitude is important. Your work is your witness. You're not serving men, but Christ. Your greatest pleasure should be to please Him. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly, that is, with goodwill. You're serving the Lord. You're not serving people. See Christ above it all. And work as if you could see Jesus right there as your foreman. Knowing this, verse 8, Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good they do. And God is not a respecter of persons. That's what it says basically at the end of verse 8. Because he rewards both the slave and the free. It doesn't, it's not determined on your status. It's dependent upon your faithfulness. And so we should serve Christ. Our employment situation is not nearly as bad as the slavery situation in the Roman Empire. So Paul is arguing, could be arguing to us from bad, from worse situation to something not so traumatic. If slaves could transform their workaday world by serving Christ, how much more can the school teacher or the stay-at-home mom or the factory worker or the computer programmer, or on and on we go. Put your job there. How much more could we transform our world if we worked for Christ? It matters not who directs you if you understand who owns you. It's not your boss in flesh. It's your Savior who is in heaven. 
And so, after talking to labor, he now addresses management in verse 9. And to management, he gives a directive. He says, treat your slaves in the same way. Now, you and I read that without understanding how radical that is. That is unbelievable. In the Roman Empire, slaves have no rights. And where there are no rights, there is no justice. Slaves are property, they're chattel, they're like animals or furniture. You can do pretty much anything you want to with what belongs to you. And now Paul says, treat them with respect. By the way, this is the golden rule, isn't it? This is the great commandment. Treat others as you want to be treated. Treat them with love and respect. What is here implied in Ephesians is clearly explained in Colossians. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly because you know that you have a master in heaven. You see, the point is this. Believers should behave differently whether they're labor or management. Oh, it's so easy for us to excuse our situation. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it insists that slaves have rights. And although things were not changed immediately, unfortunately it took way too long, the gospel is planting seeds of this liberation that we are equal. The gospel insists that slaves be treated with respect. If you want them to treat you with respect, then you must treat them with respect. What you hope to receive, you must display. Secondly, he says to management, stop threatening. Do not threaten them. Isn't it interesting? We try to be productive and build relationships on threats. This is misusing their position of authority. Verbal threats are weapons which the powerful wield over the powerless. And threats never build relationships. Hear me, husband. You cannot build a relationship with your wife on threats. Hear me, parent. You cannot build a relationship with your kids on threats. Some fathers provoke. Some masters threaten. Some husbands demand like a tyrant, but the gospel changes it all. Grace has come and made us new creatures in Christ, and we must be different. So he ends his admonition to the masters just like he did to the laborers by saying, I want you to remember this, you have the same master, and there's no partiality with him. In verse 8, he said, know this, the Lord rewards everyone equally. To the masters, he says, know this, you share the same master in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. We are all equal at the cross. Throughout the study in Ephesians, we've been bringing up that verse in Galatians 3 
When we talked about Jew and Gentile becoming one body, one church, and how they needed to put down their prejudice, and they needed to accept one another equally, we quoted Galatians 3, 28, that says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Remember that? What's the next phrase that is used? In Christ there is neither bond nor free. You say, where is that? It's Ephesians 6. And there's neither male nor female. That doesn't eliminate these distinctions. It simply means in Christ we are all equal. No matter what our heritage, no matter what our gender, no matter what our circumstance may be as far as social status, we are one in Christ and all equal before him. You see, this teaching is designed to reduce the gap in cultural situations between the haves and the have-nots. If you go to India, there is a caste system still very apparent today and unfortunately still afflicting the church. In some places, the churches are created for the haves and then you've got churches for the have-nots and it's a struggle to have the two get together. We have it in America too. Sometimes we're not willing to, someone co- to allow someone to come into our church who doesn't quite fit the demographics of our congregation, which is a fancy way of saying we're better than you. Wow. Do we know Christ with an attitude like that? Masters, understand this. You're equal and you have the same master and there's no favoritism with him. He doesn't look on favor with you because you've got more money than he does the person that you're directing. By the way, there's an interesting story about this in Philemon. It's not proprietor and property. It's not superior being to inferior being. It's really about we're all brothers in Christ. Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a rich Christian, who had a slave by the name of Onesimus, who apparently stole some of the goods belonging to Philemon and ran. He goes to Rome, probably to get lost, And he runs into the Apostle Paul. We don't know how providence brought them together. But Onesimus gets saved. And Paul trains him in the faith and then says one day, you know, you need to go back and make it right with your master Philemon. Onesimus says, if I go back, he's going to kill me. Paul said, let me write a letter. I think it'll help. And that's the letter to Philemon. I like to envision that Onesimus knocks on Philemon's door with the letter in hand. Philemon opens the door, sees Onesimus, and says, I'm going to kill you. And and Onesimus says, before you do, read this letter. It's from Paul. Paul. So he reads it. Paul says, man, I just cannot say enough about you, Philemon. You're such a great guy. All the saints are refreshed by you. You refresh my heart. What a blessing you are. The church meets in your home. All of this great stuff. Oh, by the way, accept your slave back. And I want you to take him back, he says, for good. Not as a slave, but as what? A brother. Not just a brother, but he says a brother beloved. The gospel changes the relationship. And this is one of those situations where we don't know how the story ends, but I've got to believe Philemon embraced him and said, welcome home. (laughs) Because grace changes the way we live. 
And that's the story here. John Stott says something very interesting about the contemporary employment situation. And I want to share just some of his ideas because they're stated so well. He says, justice in an employer and employee situation is based on reciprocal duties and reciprocal rights. So the employee has a duty to do good work and the employer has the duty to pay a just wage. Each person's duty, get this, each person's duty becomes the other person's right. So if it's the employee's duty to give good work, it's the employer's right to expect it. And if it's the employer's duty to pay a fair wage, it's the employee's right to expect it. He says the problem with labor and management is this. Each side concentrates on its own rights, not its duties. But you're different. You're a Christian. So when you come to the bargaining table, this is, not, this is what you say. You don't say, this is what we want. This is what we demand. You come to the bargaining table and say, this is my duty, and I vow to fulfill my duty to you. What would happen if labor and management in the workaday world of America would change to this system? Wow. Where does it start? It starts here in the church, sowing the seeds of gospel liberation of total equality in the image of God. And only by grace are we given life. So we should concentrate then on our own duties to secure the rights of another. You should so work for your employer in such a way with the right heart as unto the Lord that he is blessed and your work is your witness and your duty becomes his expectation and his blessing and vice versa. What happens when things aren't fair? (laughs) My friend, this world will never be a friend to grace to help you on to God. This world will never be totally fair, right? It won't be fair. In this world, you will have tribulation if you're a believer. Now, as Americans, we have a voice, and we ought to take advantage of that voice. I'm all for that. I'm just saying that God is more concerned about your attitude than he is about your outward condition. So just a word about the elephant in the room. How come the Bible doesn't condemn slavery? Slavery is a horrible thing. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says, lawbreakers are slave traders are lawbreakers. The word kidnap is used sometimes in 110 of Timothy. But the NIV uses the term slave traders. Slavery is a horrible thing, but service is an honorable thing. Divide the two. Service is not evil. Jesus was a servant. And in John 13, he bent down and washed the feet of all the disciples. And when he was done, he said, if you follow me, I want you to do the very same thing because servanthood is godly, not evil. The problem with slavery is the owning of one human of another and the compulsion and control over that person. 
How come the New Testament writers don't cry out for its abolishment? Well, these are some thoughts, and I don't think it gives us the total answer, but let me just quickly give them to you. Number one, the Christians were a very insignificant group in that day, politically powerless, and their religion was outlawed. They had no voice in the Roman government. Secondly, slavery was such an indispensable part of the fabric of Roman society that, as we stated, people didn't even notice a problem. One person said in ancient society, they were economically dependent on slavery as much as our modern society is dependent upon machinery. The third thing is progress was being made. Research shows that the Roman Empire was beginning to establish some laws that gave greater freedom to the slave. Maybe that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, if you have a chance to gain your freedom, do so. Interesting story that Felix, the governor in Rome, who sat over Paul's case when he was in Caesarea, Felix, employed by Rome, at one time had been a slave who earned his freedom and worked his way up the ladder to a position of great authority. So some of that, signs of improvement were everywhere, or at least evident. But we must confess this to our eternal shame that Christians were extremely slow to respond with the ramifications of the gospel on those who were enslaved, European Christians especially. Calvin saw it as a sin coming from our natural sin nature, a thing totally against the order of nature that a human being would be enslaved, a human made in the image of God. Christianity lit the fuse for this institution to be destroyed, but unfortunately it was a rather long fuse. And even today, This idea of equality is sometimes not found among God-fearing people. Paul says it doesn't make any sense. You've got the same master. Praise God for people like William Wilberforce who stood up because of the gospel and said this should not be. We have a voice, and that voice needs to be heard. Our situation can be changed by the grace of God, and if so, we need to focus on it. But if our situation cannot be changed, hear the Apostle Paul. Don't fixate on improving your situation. Focus on improving your serve. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book with that title, Improving Your Serve, years ago. Um, Are you a tennis player? Are you a serious tennis player? If you're a serious tennis player, you spend some time improving your serve because with a good serve, you can win many a match. Are you a Christian? Are you a serious Christian? If so, work on improving your serve because that's what we've been called to do. And we should not fixate on how unfair the world is around us. We should focus on improving our own obedience to Christ. Focus on Jesus. 
and let his good news so transform you that you act like no one else around you unless they too follow the same master. Let it never be said of you, they act just like the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't have all the answers for the fact that more was not said in the scripture about slavery, but we do get the sense that the seeds were sown, and obviously the gospel liberates the soul and calls all of us equal before Christ. When we are believers, we are one body, members one of another. We have the same master in heaven who orders us, the one who is no, plays no favorites. He is the one who rewards both free and bond. We need to look above our human circumstances to our heavenly Lord and listen to his voice and seek to please him. May that be true in all of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.